Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Today, we are continuing our series in honor of the beginning of the college football season, uh, taking a look at various elements of the exploitative, problematic, harmful elements of the kind of political economy of college football. And today, we have the great pleasure of talking to Tracy Canada, an anthropologist of college football um, who is an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined as usual by friends Derek Silva and Johanna Mellis. Hi, my friend. Hey, Johanna. Hey, Nathan. Hi, everyone. So we're not going to spend long today. We're going to throw it right to the show, but I just want to do the the usual reminder. Please uh, follow the show on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Uh, Please, please, please subscribe to the show um, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are really feeling generous, we would love it if you would consider contributing to our Patreon. Uh, And uh, frankly, we always welcome your uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. Um, Again, the state of Indiana is a constant source of, um, you know, just aggravation for us basically um and and they they make their feelings known on those ratings and reviews so uh that, that's one reason why it really helped we, we, don't, we haven't even reached 4.0 4. right now on our apple ratings <laughs> which seems really harsh in my opinion uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know if i've seen another podcast that has quite such a low rating as we do um so if you if you would consider boosting our numbers there that would be um very much appreciated uh And so let's send it to Tracy Canada and a discussion of college football, family, and racism. Tracy Canada is assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. She is currently working on her first book, Tackling the Everyday, Race, Family, and Nation in Big-Time College Football. Her work has appeared in Sapiens, Scientific American, and Black Perspectives. Tracy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, y'all. Thanks for having me. Um, well, okay. I want to I jump right into a kind of <laughs> a heavy uh, disciplinary question here. Um, okay. Because we, we, we've had one or two anthropologists on the show, but mostly we don't have anthropologists. And I, I like to sort of talk about the disciplinary side because it's sort of mm-hmm. like for a lot of people, what is the difference between anthropology, right? And sociology and these disciplines, like how does that affect the way you do research? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think I'm correct. And please correct me if I'm wrong, that it would be accurate to call you an anthropologist of college football. And if that's right, could you explain for listeners what that means? What is anthropology as distinct from sociology and other disciplines? And how does that disciplinary and methodological orientation shape your approach to something like college football as an object of inquiry? Yeah, sure. That is a big question. Um, but it's a question that I like to answer, especially now that I'm in the classroom with students that are hopefully going to choose anthropology. Sorry, y'all, but are going to choose anthropology over sociology. Um, because I think that there's so much that can be done with anthropology. Um, so let yeah. me start by answering your first question. So yes, I would say that I am an anthropologist of college football. Um, I would also drill down on that and say that I'm an anthropologist of college football or college sport, depending on the day, depending on what I want to talk about. Um, that works with who, who works with black college football players. Um, I like to be very clear that 
I'm very invested in the people that I work with rather than like the system that I'm working within. Um, and so that's the population that I learn from, that I'm working alongside, that I'm theorizing with, like that, those are the people that I'm working with. Um, what I appreciate about anthropology, and I will actually asterisk this and say that I got advice when I was applying to grad school to go into sociology, even though I was um, an anthropology major as an undergrad. Um, I got advice to go into sociology, and I was talking to a couple of sociologists. I, caught, I talked to a couple of anthropologists that were doing um, work that I thought was interesting and that kind of aligned with what I was interested in doing, and I still clearly decided to stay in an anthropology program. Um, there are lots of reasons for why that happened, but now that I'm in the discipline, like I'm, I, I'm a professional anthropologist, right? Like I'm in academia. Um, the way that I like to think through the discipline itself and why I'm here and why I really enjoy it for the work that I do is one, the amount of flexibility that's allowed, um, in anthropology. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much of your listeners, how many of your listeners know much about anthropology, but it is a four field discipline, right? And so there's cultural, there's biological, there's linguistic. And there's archaeology. And I think that you can look at sport through all four of those lenses. Um, and I think that things that anthropologists have historically been interested in, which are things like ritual and myth and race and kinship, like these very anthropological terms, um, are things that sport does really well, right? Like you could study those through sport. And so I think that anthropologists are, are equipped to do this, right? Um, I think a way that that comes out in a really interesting way is that I am teaching a class right now with a biological anthropologist, um, Dr. Kara Ackerbach here at Notre Dame. Um, we are co-teaching an anthropology of sport class. So I do the cultural stuff because I am a cultural anthropologist and she does the biological stuff. She's a biological anthropologist who specializes in human biology. And so it's a really interesting um, like dance between the two of us, right, of like looking at these ideas in sport, but coming at it from our different disciplinary theoretical lenses that are both within anthropology. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility with it, and that's what I appreciate. Um, I mentioned that I am a cultural anthropologist. Um, I'm a cultural anthropologist who practices ethnography, and that's really what drew me to the field. Um, it's this idea that you can be among people. Um, well, actually, the idea is you're supposed to be among people for a, a, a decent amount of time. I guess that depends on what you're working on how much funding you have, to be quite honest, um, what your plan is in grad school and then later. Um, but you are supposed to, or the idea is that you spend time among people learning from them. Um, participant observation is something that's sometimes called field work. Um, research is sometimes just what I call it. Um, but the ethnography part is what I'm really invested in and what really interests me. Because when you're spending that immersive time with people, you get to see their full lives, right? And so I'm invested in black college football players. I'm interested in their families and how their families become important to them. I'm interested in their relationships with each other, with coaches, with professors at their universities, with the people that live in the towns that they live in. And ethnography allows for me to be interested in all of those things because at least like as an example for the, the book that I'm writing, um, I've been thinking about these ideas for about 10 years now, and um, there was about, I would say, like 14 months of sustained research, and then like like two or three one-off months in between there of me just sitting with people and spending time with people and like learning from them. And so I really appreciate that I'm in a discipline that allows for me to do that. And that's why I really like anthropology, and that's why I want all my students to become anthropology majors. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I got I to hand it to you, anthropologists. At the end of the day, if I'm going to read 
sociology or anthropology, like I would choose anthropology 10 out of 10 <laughs> times because the embrace of the qualitative, no, really, yeah. like anthropology doesn't have this like weird pseudoscientific kind of, you use the word dance in terms of your teaching, but like this dance where it's like, you know, permitting some qualitative work, but really fetishizing the value of the quantitative always over mm -hmm. the qualitative, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in anthropology, what you're doing is you understand your work to be um, engaging, as you put it, engaging with people, taking their stories and experiences seriously, theorizing, taking the theoretical seriously, crafting narrative. Like, yep. Uh, yep. it's just, it, it really, it's much more compelling to read anthropological work because of the, uh, the really rich engagement with um, qualitative work. So, I mean, for anyone out there, like, th there's a lot to be said for for anthropology. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I, I, as the, as a sociologist here, I feel both seen and also I completely <laughs> agree. And nothing <laughs> and, against and sociology, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to add, as the historian, just to, to add to this sort of love fest, I mean, I remember reading like my first anthropology book in like a, a memory studies class and just being really amazed at sort of like the thick descriptions, I think was what the book mm -hmm. called it, and sort mm -hmm. of feeling like as someone who does oral history, and I'm always really kind of worried that, you know, doing a limited amount of interviews that I have time for, that this isn't really getting to the root of sort of how athletes think and feel and behaved in the past like I'm always worried that I'm missing something you know being able to observe people for that long and really learn from them is just it's just really really cool I think I agree I think it is really cool and I think to your point too like to and this is the other class that I'm teaching also actually it's about ethnographers just generally speaking but it's the idea what I appreciate about ethnography is that it is so flexible and it is so wide and you can do so much with it right and so like oral history like I would say that oral histories are part of something that I do, right? Like I'm not trained as an oral historian, but um, that is, that's part of my toolkit when I'm in the field, right? Yeah. Um, participant observation is part of it. Um, like understanding how space works and, and being in a space, like recognizing my own positionality and how that impacts the people that I'm working with, recognizing that my own feelings and emotions, a lot of this stuff is black feminist anthropology too. Um, recognizing that how I feel in the moment and how I'm reacting to things around me, you know, like all of that is data and all of that matters. And I do written ethnography. So like I will be writing a book, but the class that I'm teaching is, um, you know, people using music or people doing digital ethnography. So they're on Twitter or they're on blogs. Um, people that are, of course, now I'm like blanking on some of the other ways that people are doing it, but there's so many different ways to do ethnography. Um, and then the product itself can be so open too, because the way that we think about ethnography and anthropology is that it's a process and it's a product, right? And so you're doing both of them at the same time. And then, or you're doing, you're doing one that leads to the other, but it's not one way of doing either one of them. And so it's such an open, it's such an open method. And there's so many different ways to think about it. And there's so many things that you can do with it that I think that it's, it's intriguing, right? And it can be really creative and it can be really fun to read or to watch, you know, the people that do dance performances as their ethnography or they have embodied ethnography. There's a couple of anthropologists who um, have written about college sport and the way that they, um, the way that they did their field work was they became football players, which like that was not me, but that is a way of doing it is to like actually participate and to understand what happens to your body while you're practicing alongside these like 
20-year-old, like, very fit men. Um, <laughs> so that was never something that I wanted to do, but there was somebody that did it. Um, so there just, there's so many different ways to do it that I think that it's, it's such a flexible method that I really appreciate. Absolutely. And, and you really opened us up here to talk when, and when you're talking about positionality to get to our next question, which is sort of about the, the situations in which you've done your research and you've conducted your work in the context of some pretty major power five institutions, culminating in your appointment at perhaps the defining college football school in the country. Now, to the extent that you're comfortable, can you speak to the challenges of your institutional context in terms of conducting research that is so critical of the athletic political economy upon which these schools rely? Another big question. Y'all are, y'all are coming with some <laughs> hard hitters one. here. Um, yeah, it is a huge one because institutional context does matter, right? Um, I am not shy about where I've gone to school. I'm actually writing something now that starts out with all of my affiliations and why that means that I'm particularly invested in ACC schools because I've been um, affiliated with a lot of ACC schools. I went to undergrad at Duke. Um, I went to grad school at UVA. I was um, a research collaborator at UNC, and now I'm at Notre Dame, right? And so I've moved through several ACC institutions. Um, ACC is part of the Power Five. Um, and I work on college football. I have the entire time. Um, I think what's interesting about where I've been and what I appreciate about where I've been is one that that was on purpose. I think that the work that, or at least tried to make it on purpose, there's, there's really no rhyme or reason to how jobs work nowadays in academia. Um, but I was hoping to get a position at a university that bare minimum had a football team. Um, because I thought that the work that I, not I thought, I think the work that I do lends itself to being in a space where people are surrounded by it in a way that either they love it or they hate it, but they want to talk about it. And I wanted to be around students that were invested in it in that way, right? Like I have some students in some of my classes now that like have no idea what's going on with football, but are willing to talk about through how that means, like how that impacts their experience at their university. Um, and because, because they see it, whether or not they're participating, they see it going on all the time. And so they are invested in a particular way. I have found that students are invested. I have found that um, my colleagues, other professors are invested. I found that staff are invested because of the way that they can sometimes get tickets to games. Um, administrators are invested for lots of different reasons. And so I've been interested in these types of institutions for those reasons. I also think that it's important to note that I'm not talking about the institutions that I've been affiliated with, right? Like I make I work with black college football players. I will consistently say that because those, that's who I'm committed to. Um, and I work with players, sometimes individuals, sometimes groups of them at different universities in certain parts of the country, depending on where I am, depending on where I have access. Um, and I'm making arguments and I'm trying to learn about their lives to make larger claims about the system of college football, right? Which then to me says that I can say something about this place that we live in, right? Like this United States, these United States, as they like to call them. Um, I think that it says something about this place. And so I'm working my way up from like the people to these much larger ideas, um, which means that it doesn't really matter where my work is, right? Like the field work that I'm doing, the research that I'm doing, and that's what I stay committed to. But what I'm interested in is that these universities that are Power Five universities that I've been affiliated with, or even ones that I've not, they do have a vested interest in athletics, right? In some way or another. And I really appreciate that because that means, at least in my experience, they're open to researchers like me, right? Who are thinking through these things that are invested in it, 
I wouldn't say that I want to, <laughs> this is funny. I wouldn't say that I want it to end, right? Like to be on this podcast. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that I want it to end, but I am invested in seeing it be different, at least for the people that are participating in it. Um, and so I found that universities are open to that, right? Like Notre Dame hired me. I did not hire what I do. My job talk was very similar to the way that I'm talking now, right? Like they, they knew what I, what my work is. Um, I think another thing that's really like a, just another example of these institutions showing that they're open to critique. They're open to people telling them potentially how they could be better, how it could be better for their athletes. Duke has a, a race and sport um, postdoc that they just hired. Um, Javier Wallace. And so there are these there are these little pockets of hope, I think, um, that you can find at these universities that like on the outside, yeah, they they are these huge institutions that are doing a lot and causing harm in various ways. But they do invite people like us there. Like we are there. We are able to work there. We are researching there. We are able to teach the students there. And so I think there's something to be said about that. Um, because I found that they are at least open to the critique and are willing to hear it and are willing to change some of the stuff, perhaps based on what we know. And we know it because we are researchers and we have spent the time on it. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping that they're open to these critiques, at least moving forward. But so far, they definitely have been in my experience. Yeah, I I think that it, that institutional sort of context is, is vitally important to understand, not just um, the the place of researchers like yourself, but also the importance of the work that you do. And I I think that this is a perfect um, pivot to use the the word of the day um, <laughs> to talking about your your work um, specifically, um, because. Obviously, that is why we wanted you on the show. Um, your work is fundamentally about kinship and care in the context of college football. Something that we've thought about, we've talked about on Twitter, but we haven't really engaged with on the show. Can you explain how the quote unquote family is deployed by college football teams to, in some ways, obfuscate power dynamics, how it's racialized? And what you understand the consequences of that discursive frame to be, generally speaking? Sure. Um, because as you mentioned, this is something that I think about a lot. It's something that I talk to, to people about a lot. I'm very invested in it um, because I thought it was, I can get into this later too, like this was, this was not what I originally intended to focus on when I started doing this research, which I think is mm -hmm. an... an um, Something else that lends itself to being an ethnographer is that you get surprised in the field and things come up and you're like, what is this? And I don't understand what's going on. And I'll just have to write this down now and figure it out later. And so all of this family, like kinship and care stuff was, was the thing for me that was really surprising. And I wasn't really sure what to do with it while I was in the middle of it. And then I had to think through it a lot. And so I'm still in the process of thinking through it. I mean, like even after the book is done, I'll probably still be thinking about this stuff. Um, but the ways that I see it now is that, as you mentioned, family is definitely, like, everything is infused with this rhetoric of family, I have found, in football teams. And I think that it's something that is inherent to the fact that they're so big. I mean, right? Like, if we think about, um, let's, let's just give it 100, which I'm sure teams are bigger than that, but I'll just, I'll just say that there are 100 players on a team. You've got all of the coaches. You've got the medical staff, like the sports medicine staff. You've got nutritionists if they're there. Um, you've got the camera, like media people, because they're recording everything all the time. You've got these like big groups of people. You sometimes have admins that come to, to practices and games, right, and are on the field. 
Um, if you're just looking at the space of the field and who's involved in the team in that way, it's a ton of people. And so I think that I think that they, I don't know who started it, but somebody did it first and they're like, ooh, this works. Like, let's let's keep going with this. Right. Like there's this rhetoric of family of like, once you come to this university, once you are part of this team, you are part of this football family. And that's the way that I talk about it. And the way that I like to distinguish between what is going on there and what's going on with players, because that's what I'm as I mentioned, that's what I'm invested in, is that this football family is an administrative family, right? Like it's coming from the top down. It's coming from the coaches. It's coming from other administrators that are working with the team. Um, and the way that they like to convince players that it is a thing is not only this rhetoric, the way that they're consistently reinforcing it and the way that they're talking, but like actually naming it, right? Like some, some schools, some teams, some professional teams too call themselves the brotherhood. Some places have these hashtags that they're rallying around in very particular ways. Like you see it on the shirts, you see it on, um, I don't know how big they are now, but while I was conducting field work, there was a big rally and there was a big thing around um, those plastic bracelets. Um, and so that was like a, a big recruiting thing is that you could put the, the hashtag on the bracelets and give it out to recruits when they came to games. Um, you see it sometimes when people are post, well, because it's a hashtag, when they're posting on their social media, sometimes the players are doing it, but it's a lot of the, like the official football team accounts are using those hashtags to reinforce this idea that like, we are in this together. We came from different places of like different parts of the world, perhaps, but definitely different parts of the country. Um, Y'all went to different schools. You might not have known each other before you came here. You're all different years, different ages. Um, football is pretty much a black and white sport, but like different races and ethnicities, like y'all are completely different people. But once you came to this university and you said that you wanted to be a part of this team, you are now part of this football family. And now what that means is that we are in it together. We will win together. We will lose together. We will practice beside each other. We will, um, some places have them all staying in the same dorms when they first get there. They will eat meals together. They will travel together. Camp is like this really intense period of time where they're spending like weeks together at a time, not seeing anybody else, um, but only seeing each other and being like they, the teams will um, have buses that have them travel from either their dorm or hotel to the football facilities, right? Like they will be so isolated from other people and it's fine. The The idea is that it's fine because you're with your football family, right? Like we are here for you. We will make it work. Right. And so there are all these ways that it's consistently reinforced, but again, it's a top-down thing. What I find really interesting is that sure it's top-down thing, football teams. Yeah. You do need a team. You really need a cohesive team in order to find any type of success. And that I guess success can be a very open idea if it's, wins on the field, if it's people coming together in times of crisis, if it's, um, I don't know, if, if they actually go pro, like success can be thought through in different ways when you're talking about something that's as competitive as college football. Um, but there is a, a certain amount of success with that. But then you've got the individual players that are on the team. And what I find really interesting is that there's all of this conversation about was, we're in it together and we're on this team. But it is still a very individualized thing. And the way that I say that, or the reason that I say that is because like everybody gets their own number, right? Like, and you have your very individual number and it has your name on it. Usually depending on where you're at, some places don't put their, their some places don't even put their name on it um, because they're trying to say that you are part of this team, but actually we give you an individual number. So you're still an individual. Um, they have their individual lockers. 
They have their individual injuries that they're trying to deal with. If they do go pro, it's you as the individuals, not the team that's all going, right? And so there are all of these ways that are showing this disconnect between this like really big overarching narrative of family and we're in it together, but like all of these ways is actually showing that they're very cellular individuals, right? Um, Joanna, the other uh, the other day on, on Twitter, you said something that I thought was really interesting because it, it ties to this. Another way that this is showing up is in the COVID vaccines, right? Is this idea that um, like we are a team and we're going to try to fight this thing together. And when they say things like that, it's like, do you mean we're going to try to fight COVID together? Or we're going to try to fight this other team together? Like, what is what do you mean by that? Um, Mm -hmm. And then it comes out that potentially coaches aren't getting vaccinated or there's no mandate for the teams or, you know, like whatever the the, whatever the rules are for the individual teams to show that, like, actually, we're not in it together. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if if you yourself don't want to get vaccinated, if you yourself don't want to wear a mask, then we're not going to force you to do it. And this isn't everywhere. And I can't even remember what school it was. But even that, even if there's one place that's saying that, they're guaranteed to be having this family rhetoric going on at the same time. And so it's this really weird, strange balance because both are happening at the same time. And so what I find is that because I work with Black players, they recognize this disconnect on some level, whether they're conscious of it or not, but they recognize that it's like, hey, like there's this team rhetoric, but then like I'm in this, I'm actually in this by myself, like, and for better or worse, right? Like I'm, I am in this by myself. If I make it, I make it by myself. But because this individualized thing is a very your American way of being, black players have a different way of relating, right? And they have a different form of community and they have a different way of wanting to be around other people. And so they create the way that I theorize it is that there's a difference between these teammates who are brought in to be part of this team, to be brought in to be part of this football family, There's a difference between football teammates and football brothers, which are the black players that end up on a team. It's usually about half of the team is black. Um, That's pretty consistent. Maybe the numbers have shifted a little bit, but pretty much across the board, half of football teams are half of college football teams in the power five are black. Um, So you have all these players, again, that are coming from different parts of the country that went to different schools that had different experiences. But now they're all black men that ended up together on a football team at a Power 5 university, which is a historically white university. And so now they have this very particular experience of like, I might not know the school that you came from, I might not know how you grew up, but we are both black men that ended up at this institution in this place together, and we can relate on that. And that is a fundamentally different experience, I argue, than what teammates go through, than what white players go through. Um, than what coaches think is going on. I think that that's a fundamentally different experience. And so that's the way that family is coming out in all of these different ways and people are navigating it and people are buying into it partially because they have to, right? Like you need a team in order to be successful. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are pushing against it or being subversive or looking at it and saying like, "Mm, I'm interested in parts of that, but not all of it. Like I need to find something else for myself. Like there's there's still going to be people that are transgressing that in some way. And I argue that it's the black players that are transgressing it. Wow, what a fascinating answer. And we could just go in so many different directions. Uh, first, I want to say, like, kudos to your memory. I don't even remember tweeting about what it is that you made. <laughs> you did, like, you did. Wrecking my brain. <laughs> I'm wrecking my brain and I'm like, okay, she's making me sound way smarter than I am, but I don't remember this. <laughs> 
I promise it was you. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, one thing that, that we've talked about on Twitter and that we talk about in like our end of sport and like D- DMs and DMs to other people is how this, I don't know if, if you would call it like a myth or sort of a cover up or rhetoric of, of kind of the family unit, mm-hmm. how it seems to be used as a way to um, create unity and sort of this, this myth of racial blindness, but then yeah. also to cover up any kind of abusiveness that's going on. And we see this obviously in college football. We see it in a lot of other sports and like the coach being referred to as like a second parent, a second dad, a second mm-hmm, mom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing that always really sticks out in my mind that came out a few years ago was that the wife of the UF football coach a couple of years ago, I don't remember if it was Dan Mullen's wife. Um, I, I don't follow college football, but I remember there was like a video of her kissing players on the mouth mm-hmm, as they were mm-hmm. getting on the bus and yep. just being like this is so disgusting like this <laughs> is to me it seems like sexual abuse like this is horrible mm-hmm. um but but it's just something that keeps coming up and so I would kind of love for you to hear uh, your thoughts about kind of the family dynamic and the sorry the family rhetoric and abuse and things like that yeah when I, th- I remember that clearly I didn't remember that it was UF but I do remember that situation and I thought it was interesting as well. We'll just say, I thought it was interesting. Um, (laughs) what I find, what I find about the family rhetoric is that it works, right? Like you can't, I, I would argue that you really can't think about football without thinking about the ways that these players are all together, right? Like, I think it changes a little bit once they become professional because they are so mobile, right? Like you can, your, your team can change. Um, you can get traded in that way. Um, you can get injured and then like your career can be over, but college is a very, it's a sweet spot. And that's why I'm interested in, and that's why I'm committed to college football at this point, um, in my career, because it's, it's such an interesting time in players' lives. Um, it's such an interesting couple of years or several years. Um, so there's something very specific about college football. What I think about the family, what I think that the family rhetoric does as based on what you're saying is that it, it, it smooths out differences and issues because the idea is that we're all in this together and it is about unity and it is about community, which then means that if something goes wrong, you're not supposed to speak out against the family, right? Like that's, and that's something that we could see happening in biological families outside of sport is this idea that like, you know, you're supposed to care for the family in a particular way. Like things need to stay private we don't invite others into our issues. And I think that that's something that mm-hmm. happens with these teams, right? Like, I think it's the same type mm-hmm. of behavior and it's the same type of thinking. It's the same way of thinking about things that are going on internally. And it's to protect, we could get into this too, right? It's to, it's to protect the brand, it's to protect the team, it's to protect the university, it's to protect the, the conference, which then gets us to the NCAA, which then gets us to the entire system of college football. Right. Like it's it's a protection thing. But the way that they're starting it and I'm not even going to say that I've seen this type of issue up close. Right. Like this didn't happen while I was conducting field work. I didn't see anything wild like this happening, but I could see how it could be working in that way because there is such a such an emphasis on this idea that we're in it together. And if we're in it together, like you don't want us to go down, right? Like you don't want to be the reason why something happens to us, but also let's keep in mind, if we go down, you go down too, because we're all in this together. (laughs) So like, you don't want your chance of whatever the situation may be. I don't know the playing on Saturday or 
um, me talking to this coach and inviting this coach that might be interested in you, or perhaps if like a player is, is interested in transferring, you don't want me to, to say something negative about you to another coach, you know, like whatever the situation may be, mm-hmm. you don't want to be the squeaky wheel um, that brings attention to something that's happening internally. And the way that they are mobilizing that and making it work is through this idea of family and through this idea of this like very on top of it team that is very invested in itself, right? And wanting to protect itself. And again, that comes out in so many different ways, but really what it's about is protecting the brand of the university, the brand of the team itself. Um, Teams at certain universities sometimes relate to one another. But what I've found is that like, usually if you play football, you play football. If you play basketball, you play basketball. If you play tennis, you play tennis. Like they're usually pretty isolated from one another, but there is this idea that like at the university, you are an athlete there. So you also don't want to bring attention to athletics at your institution. There are all of these ways that they're just trying to say that like, let's, let's be in it together. Let's keep it internal and let's make sure that we're good and not bring other people into this conversation. Let me just interject for one sec with a quick fact check. Uh, it was indeed Dan Mullen's wife, Megan, mm. who was kissing players. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. One of the things that I was thinking about, Tracy, as you, as you were talking, is how this this rhetoric and this discursive frame is being sort of challenged or it's rubbing up against, let's call it capitalism, through NIL. And how coaches are now using um, NIL as a way to, or using family as a way to um, kind of uh, justify the sort of individual or a critique of the individualistic players who may mm-hmm. benefit from something like like NIL. Mm-hmm. I know we didn't give you this question in advance, but I'd like <laughs> to get your thoughts on how that sort of tension or how you perceive the tension between this family rhetoric and this collective rhetoric and the possibility for um, campus athletic workers to seek out things through, seek out opportunities through NIL. Yeah, NIL, I am not up to date on all of the stuff that's going on with that, mostly because from what I can tell, it's super messy at this point, and I can't even, mm-hmm. I can't even follow it. I'm not even sure what's going on. I have seen that a couple of teams have, and I'm not even sure what the right language is to use for this, a couple of teams or universities have said that they will do, like, uh, I think UNC was one of them where like they will have the, like the, the teams themselves will have some type of deal or they'll have something that they Mm -hmm. will provide for the players. Again, I don't even know what the language is for it, but really what it seems to me is it's, it's this tension coming up again, again and again and again of we're going to be in this together. We're going to be united. We're going to be a collective, Mm -hmm. but actually it is still very individual, right? Like the way that I understand NIL and (laughs) I could say off the record, but like I'm clearly on the record. Um, The way that I understand NIL is that it is like you, the individual. Maybe it's, um, I've seen, I've read a couple of like maybe team, um, a couple of positions able to get deals together. Like like all of the D linemen or something have some type Mm -hmm. of deal together. But that still means that like, sure, as the D line, you get this deal that still leaves a ton of people that are left off of the team that are not in that deal. And then there could potentially be like, let's say that, let's say it's, I don't, I don't know what it is, but like, let's hope that this is what it is. Um, that the D line gets a deal at a, uh, a wing stop 
and they get to eat all of the chicken that they want to, and they just have to tell people about it. But, like, there's one D. Lyman that can actually eat ten times as much as the other ones. Like, maybe he will then get an, a more of a deal than everybody else, right? Like, it's still very individual. Yeah. And so I think that that's, like, it's a very interesting tension that continuously comes up. Um, and, again, this is something that anthropologists talk about all the time, which is why it's fascinating to me that more don't look at sport um, but this this tension, it's a it's a dualism between individuals and collectives. There's a lot of binaries that anthropologists yeah. are interested in, and that's a main one. Um, it's like, what happens when you are the individual that's succeeding, but you are succeeding, again, in whatever way that means, but you are a part of a team? Like, how do you navigate that? What do you do with that tension? How do the people that are in charge um, managing that tension for you, on behalf of you, in spite of you? Like, what are they doing? And that is something that is, I think we're just going to keep seeing it come up over and over again. Um, I have appreciated, again, the, the little that I've been able to follow by NAL and actually, like, understand what's going on. I have appreciated the ways that they have shown data that female athletes are not going to be harmed by NIL. And that is another way of, I mean, I, I work with a, an all-male sport. Um, but that is something that I've appreciated about that because since it is so individualized, I could see why people might have thought that female athletes would have gotten the short end of the stick, but that's actually not true. So I have appreciated the data that's been showing that. Um, but it, it only reinforces this idea that it is an individual thing, right? Like it's not the women that are on the, it's not the teams that these women are on that is going to get these like massive deals. It's the individuals that are on these teams. Um, so I, I think I would just say that it's, it's a continuous, it's a continuous tension that you can see in several different ways in football, but NIL is just going to be one of the other ways. Like, he can just be added to the list of this tension between the individual and the collective. Totally. And I think that there's actually, like, we see in the in the build-up to NIL, as this was something that has been sort of debated in the last few years as legislation was going through the different state houses and so forth, it really comes back to the way in which this family rhetoric is used as a kind of um, cudgel to enforce the sorts of exploitation that exist on these campuses, right? And to, and to obfuscate, as you said earlier, Derek, to, like, to, to cover over them. Mm -hmm. Because what we had was this idea that, well, we can't possibly have name, image, and likeness compensation. Again, like the absolute most attenuated form of compensation imaginable, a compensation for additional promotional labor, not actually the compensation that these athletes deserve mm -hmm. for the work that they are doing for the institutions. And we're always talking about that. But I mean, even even that tiny pittance of a form of additional work for additional compensation, these teams framed it as a threat to mm -hmm. the very fabric mm -hmm. of the enterprise of college football because it would compromise the family, yeah. right? Because yeah. it would pit players against each other and, and, and highlight these tensions that you've been talking about, Tracy. Um, and so we had to, like, it was essentially used as yet another way of buttressing amateurism as a concept and and so it becomes another insidious way in which the seemingly kind of lovely veneer of family covers over something much much darker right and can i add something to that to say that in you saying that it, it could lead to competition between the players i find that to be a fascinating or i mean it doesn't matter anymore because i nil is a thing now but that was a really interesting argument because there's already so much competition between players that yes. the ways that they were trying to make it seem as though this was going to be added, it's like, well, what do you think you're doing when you're telling players, like, one of you is going to start on Saturday. We'll figure it out during the week. Like, and y'all go at it, and by Friday, I'll know. 
and maybe by Saturday morning, like maybe I'll wait until Saturday morning to make that decision. You know, like there's that type of competition. There's the competition of players coming in, like they know every year there's going to be a new class of, of players, right? They're going to come in behind them. And it's the same idea of like, they're coming for your spot. Like that's still a rhetoric that's used in football, right? Like you could watch old, I, I have a fascination with old um, football movies and shows. You can watch them and you can see how like that's something that was said and it's made it seem as though that's not what's going on anymore because this is such this is such an old school way of of motivating players but it's like no they do that still still to this day right there's competition between them um camp to me is a really interesting time because it's one of the only times that there's like actual like legitimate competition between the um the offense and the defense because they're playing against each other so much during camp to prepare for games and so you find these like really interesting tensions between the offense and the defense during this like two or three week period before this the season starts because they're constantly being pitted against each other and camp is one of the times that they can actually um like actually tackle in a real way and so they are actually hitting up against each other their teammates and like trying to to win or lose and I mean hurt each other is part of it too because there's violence involved. Um, so there's already so much competition that's built into it, and it it is needed for this type of sport because it's a sport that relies on again you hitting up against each other, with, uh, hitting up against someone else with so much force that you maybe don't hurt them, but you at least stop them from moving forward. Like that's the goal. And so there has to be a way to foster this very violent competition. And it happens all the time. And so that was a really interesting way because that was another way. It was a way of, of limiting, or they were saying that it was a way of limiting competition, but that type of competition was financial, right? Like it was, it was, a, it was a capitalist type of competition rather than like an embodied violent one. And so it was a very interesting, again, another tension that just comes up. I think the football is just like, it's just riddled with tensions. Um, it was an interesting tension that came up because it's like, oh, this type of competition is fine, right? But this type of competition over here is not, and we want to limit this one, but actually like, no, keep hitting each other, put your helmets on, put your, put your uniforms on, put your pads on, go out there. Like, we need you to do this type of thing over here, but like, let's actually put this other one on the back burner. Cause that's not going to help you, right? That's actually going to hurt the team. And we don't really need that right now. It was fascinating the way that these conversations were, were playing out. And I think that part of it too, is that maybe people don't actually know that that's what's happening, right? Like maybe people don't know that there's that much competition already within a team, but some of us do. And so to hear those types of conversations was really fascinating to see how it was, it was being mobilized, as you were saying, against the players for the benefit of the coaches and the universities and the administrators. And as if, right, and as you point out, as if capitalist competition for some people is not okay mm -hmm. in a capitalist society, mm -hmm. where like only certain people can do that. And the other thing I was going to say is that the whole idea of like the family, like families are not always healthy. Nope. They're not. <laughs> right? Like, they are, like, and also, like, you know, different communities have different conceptions of what a family is, mm -hmm. right? So even this idea that's one that's, that's dominated by white men, for example, that their notion of the white family is the best and the healthiest one that players should be sacrificing everything for. I mean, that's, like, fundamentally faulty, not only because it's, you know, built upon centuries of, of, of racial oppression and violence. But um, I just, you know, it just baffles me how people continue to use and accept this family rhetoric as something that is automatically 
fundamentally healthy is just something that really, really boggles me, I guess. Fundamentally healthy and then also better than, right? Like that's a whole history mm-hmm. of um, like if we want to play into this idea that it's predominantly white coaches, like most of most of the head coaches in the Power Five are white. Um, and if we want to think of this idea, as you were pointing out, of like the coach is the father of this football family, which in certain ways to me is like a gross notion. But like if we want to follow through with that, part of the way that they're able to mobilize that and kind of sometimes maybe convince people that that is a thing is because they're relying on stereotypes about the black family being quote unquote broken because historically it's been written about that there are not men in the family and they're run by these women and like these women can't run families that are like that have sons like women what what can a woman teach a son um nothing and so we need to have a father figure in there and you don't have one okay great I'm gonna be like I will be the father figure of your family as this coach right and so it's playing on as you mentioned it's playing on all of these um I mean it's playing on stereotypes it's playing on a lot of racist and anti-black thinking it's playing on a lot of historical narratives that have become ingrained um and there are totally like tons of people that are writing against it black feminists have been writing against this idea that the black family is broken forever um but there is it's still like their writing is still their writing and their teaching and their talking is still playing up against um like like government policies, right? And and government officials that have been writing about this stuff. Moynihan was somebody that did actually write about this and was talking about how dysfunctional the black family was, um, not recognizing context, not recognizing anything historical, really. He was just writing about it because he thought that it was true. Um, and so it's playing into that. And that's the other reason why I think that it works, right? It's because this is a sport that is, I mentioned before, it is specific to the United States. It's played in a couple of other countries, but not in the same way and not with as much fervor and not with as much interest. Um, So there's something specific about this place that allows for all of that type of stuff to work. And it's allowed to mobilize in a very particular way. And because of the people that I work with and the people that I'm invested in, I noticed that a lot of it is based off of like historical arguments about race and racism blackness, anti-blackness, lived experiences that are very specific to this place, right? Like a lot of this, I don't think would translate outside of the United States. And that's partially why football works here, works in quotation marks. And that's partially why it doesn't, but it's playing on a lot of these issues that have been going on for a very long time and picking ones, cherry picking ones that work for the situation. And as you mentioned, the family one is one that is, can definitely be mobilized really easily because it can play on so many different, so many different angles. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating, um, and it, it intersects with the the next thing I wanted to kind of circle back to because you indicated when we first started talking, having this conversation about the family, um, you mentioned uh, after after explaining how exploitative um, the use of this sort of family notion can be on behalf of the university, how it is at the same time complicated by by the players who take it up, specifically the black players, and and I think that that's one of the most fascinating parts of your research here because like the team is essentially trying to interpolate its players into this logic of the family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the instrumental imperatives of performance that confront all college football players, to a certain extent, I think, probably, and you might disagree with this, but I think probably to a certain extent, black players like other players on the team do kind of consent to the ideological construct of the team as a family, right? Because it like it serves the team's interest with respect to winning and winning benefits the players personally. And there has to be a kind of buy-in or why are they even part of this project on one hand? Mm-hmm. 
And yet their positionality within the racialized political economy of college football also produces friction that disrupts the seamless interpolation sought by the university, right? And that's really clear in the work that you've done. Mm -hmm. I would just love if you could, again, you, you already indicated this, but could you explain how black players transform the kinship logic of college football to serve their own interests? And, and, and I guess what I'm trying to get at a little bit is because I've seen this in your work, like it, it's so fascinating in that ethnography to hear just even some of these stories, you know, like some of the actual stories of how it happens, like examples of how they might do this. Yeah, sure. And, and it's interesting that you ask for examples because the examples also bleed into all of these other things that are going on. And I think that's so representative of what the situation is, right? Like when young black men come to these universities and are playing on these teams, again, they're coming from different experiences, but they're relatively isolated on these campuses because they, these campuses don't have large populations of black students, black men in particular. Um, if there are black men on these campuses, a lot of them do play some type of sport, which only feeds into the stereotype that black men play sport, and that's the only reason why you got here. But on the other hand, sometimes it is true that a lot of them do play a sport for the university. Um, and so it's an experience that they can all relate to one another through that, right? Of like, I might not know your background. I don't know your family. I don't know what you went through the first 17 or 18 years of your life. But we are here now, and we are both being stereotyped in similar ways. Our classmates are looking at us in similar ways. Our professors might not be giving us credit for being here on academic merit. They're only thinking that we're here on athletic merit. Um, we're spending a ton of time together because we have to because of this team thing. I think the other thing that's interesting about football is that it's a fall sport, which means that even if you come in, like let's say first years when they come in, they come in the summer before and then their season is immediately when school starts, right? Like they don't have any off time from the sport when they first get there. There's really no off time for football at any time, but not definitely not when they first get there. So they spend s such an amount of such a great amount of time together the summer before and then the fall season and then there is a little bit of a break but then there's spring ball right and so the way that the season is organized only compounds this like togetherness and the amount of time that they're spending together um something that i'm i'm thinking through in the ways that i the reasons that i think that black players have different forms of relating to one another is because of this intense like relationship that they have with one another and it has to do with the time but it also has to do with the fact that they are experiencing anti-blackness and racism in ways that other teammates are not and that's not even to say that their coaches are not right like their their black coaches might also be experiencing it but they belong to the administration and so that's not they're not always part of this brotherhood not usually actually um, age does have something to do with it too. So you have people of a certain age that are coming in together at the same time. They're in a in a foreign place together. Um, sometimes they play the same position because they're, I don't know if the word is clustering. There is a word for, I can't think of what it is right now. But when um, certain players of certain races play certain sports, usually they're pigeonholed sometimes into these positions. So they're usually playing similar positions so they can relate to each other on that end. And outside of and also inside of the team sometimes, they're experiencing racism and anti-blackness. That can be on their campus, the way that, as I mentioned, the way that um, other students are reacting to them. That could be in the classroom, 
of not being seen as smart enough to be there. That can be in the towns or cities that they live in, because again, these are usually historic, the, the places that I work are usually historically white institutions, um, which then does impact the landscape of the city or town that the institution is located in. So even if they're relatively safe and protected on campus, because let's say the people understand that they are football players, they dress in, in whatever the, the, there's a, I, I claim it as a football uniform, but it's usually like the sweats and the, and the book bags and the, the sneakers that they're, they're given from the team. If they dress in that all the time, usually they stand out in particular ways on their campuses because that's what they're wearing. But the second they leave that campus, that's a different experience. And that is something that they can relate to one another through, right? And so the way that I think through this brotherhood is that they are creating a brotherhood as a response to anti-blackness and as a way of protecting themselves and caring for each other in this like wild, strange, oppressive sometimes, like leaning on stereotypes space. And again, it's for a specific amount of time, but what I think that is different about it, it's very similar. I write about fraternities and sororities too, well, not sororities, but fraternities um, in Greek life and how this is a little, this is kind of similar to that. Of this is not just for the time being, right? Like this is not just for, like I need something in this time. I'm here for four or five years. You're here for four or five years. We're in it together. And then once we graduate, I'm never gonna talk to you. Like it's not that type of relationship. It's not that type of brotherhood. Like this is something that keeps going for years and years and years after they graduate. It's something that's horizontal and vertical. So it's with the people of their year and the people that came before them and the people that come after them, right? Like they're all of these connections that they're making to one another. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that they understand this experience in a fundamentally different way than other people do, right? And so it could be it could be that you're adding in people to this as it goes along. Something that I found really interesting while I was conducting field work was um, you can have these football brothers on the same team and then you see that one individual player has football brothers from his high school team. And so they might come visit and then now they're part of this football brotherhood because they are still experiencing similar things, right? Like they understand that relationship of like being a larger than the norm, a larger, stronger, taller black man in the world and what that experience is like. So like, even if you didn't go to my university, like you understand, so you're part of the brotherhood, right? So like, it's an, it's an interesting thing that um, outsiders in quotation marks can sometimes come into it in that way. Um, it is something that spans years, spans positions on the team, um, that is not limited by space or time at this like particular place at this particular time in my life. You find that they're in each other's weddings and there when they have kids later on and there when they are getting married because of the weddings, but then potentially because they're getting divorced. And so they're there for the, look, you know, like these, these things that happen just in life that has nothing to do with football are continuing because of this bond that was created because they were trying to care for and protect each other from the racism and anti-blackness that they were experiencing together while they were in college. And it's really fascinating to see because at this point, I can even see it with people that I went to undergrad with, right? Like the connections and relationships that they have with one another, the football players that were there when I was there, like it's fascinating the way that they have maintained connection with one another, even though they went to different parts of the country, even though they, they ended up in different industries, even though they had completely different life trajectories, they're still very connected. And every year it seems like the same thing is happening of there's these connections between players. And a lot of it stems from the fact that they relate to one another because of these wild, ridiculous, like out there experiences 
that they are seeing together and alongside each other. And the ways that it's playing out, like the way that it plays out in my field work is that I would look around and like I could, a lot of it was through jokes. Like that was something that I eventually recognized was their way of, of maneuvering this is that when someone makes a joke that seems a little off color or like, maybe you shouldn't have said that in this particular moment, or like, this is actually really serious. Like what is going on? Like, why are you joking about this? It's their way of like signaling to everybody else. of Like you saw that, right? Like you saw this thing that happened and it wasn't just me. And like, you're experiencing it too. And you realize that it's probably rooted in the fact that we are young black men that are in this space together. You saw it too. Okay, cool. Like, we're recognizing it. I'm going to make a joke about it. It's usually in poor time. And it's like, it's, it's not like a ha-ha funny joke, but it is a joke. We recognize it and then we move on, right? Like that's the ways that they're able, that was one of the ways that they were able to signal to one another of like, I see you, I'm caring for you. I'm watching out for you in this space. The same thing is happening to me. So you're not alone in this and we're in it together. So now let's, let's move forward. Let's keep walking. Let's keep driving. If it was like a car situation where they were stopped by police, let's, um, like if they were in a group together in a classroom, like let's let let's recognize that that comment that was made about us is incorrect, but we're going to move on and we're going to finish this project. You know, it was all of these ways that they were signaling to one another that they were there for each other and they saw each other and they were caring and they would just leave it in that moment and move on. Fascinating. And, you know, I just ha- I have a follow up question um, and, and, and please correct me if this is like too sort of simplistic or maybe a der- too derivative of a way to to categorize it. But, you know, the, the ways in which uh, these black players kind of use these ideas of kinship and care and, you know, jokes. And so the fact that these relationships um, and these strategies really you see them across a life cycle, mm-hmm. I think, as you mm-hmm. talked about, that it goes for, like much further beyond, you know, the, the field and, and, you know, college and things like that. Are these kind of like coping mechanisms? Are they tactics of resistance? I mean, again, if this these are two simplistic ways to understand them, like please clear, please correct me, but I'm just sort of curious how you would kind of categorize what these athletes are doing and these sort of strategies that they're using. Yeah, I mean, it's not that you saying that is simplistic at all. That's something that I'm consistently thinking about, right? It's like, how do I define what it is that they're doing, right? Because it's something that's very, I think it's very tangible and it's very easy to, I I thought it was recognizable and easy to see. But it's still like, how do you categorize this? I think that where I stand with it now is that it's their way of survival, right? Like, and, and it's, it can sometimes be like actual, like actual survival of like, this is a life or death situation. And we need to make this through it. We need to make it through it together. And so like, how are we going to do that? It can also be survival of like the risk of injury or the risk of violence. Like those are just as important um, and just as critical as those situations that are like actually about survival and like are actually about like this violence being brought upon your body. And that's the other thing that makes it very specific to this particular population is that hopefully you recognize in the way that I'm saying, like, this isn't just outside of football either. This is also inside of football because football is inherently dangerous and a really violent sport, right? And so this can be like, this can be, I saw you got tackled in a, in a really hard, like, probably, not probably, very unnatural way. Like, are you okay? Like actually asking someone, are you okay? Like going out and like helping 
your your brother like if he's down and he's not getting up fast enough like going back out on the field like calling the medical staff over um the way that and this is this is this is a team thing which like brings us back to why it's so messy right like this is a team thing but some of it is a brother thing some of it all goes together the way that they kneel when when players are are injured and being carted off the field right like that's a team thing of bonding together of like we see you we see that you're injured we are here for you we're trying to help right like this is stuff that happens on the field but then it also moves off of the field of like we are stopped by police we are in this car together what are we going to do to make sure that I make it home that you make it home like how are we going to deal with this we are in this situation um one of like one of my favorite stories to tell because it ended up being fine and it was funny after the fact but not in the moment one of my favorite stories to tell is that we were I was walking um around a campus um a campus hospital because one of the players was injured and he, it, it wasn't like a, the, the football team didn't um, perform the surgery on him. He went to the, the campus hospital. Um, and so we were trying to go visit him after he'd had his surgery. And so I was with, I think, three or four other players. And it was at night. It was like pitch dark at night. And the hospital was under construction. And we were lost. Like, they, they were trying to claim that we weren't lost. But we were totally lost. And so we're just roaming around. I think it was, like I said, like, it was either four or five of us walking around at night, trying to find where this player was. He had dropped a pin, and so we knew, like, geographically where he was, but, like, tangibly, the space around us was not making sense to where he was, and so we were just roaming. And this hospital worker, um, like, appeared out of nowhere. It was the only person that we had seen the entire night that we were, the entire time that we were out there. Um, and we could tell that he was skittish. Like, from afar, we could tell that he was skittish. And the way that they navigated that, I was like, well, we need to find out where we are. So I'll ask him because I'm reading this situation. I am a woman. I am a smaller woman. Like you are larger black men. We are all relatively young, but like we, we can't do anything about that. But in order to help the situation out, like I will go and ask him where we're supposed to be. And one of the players went with me and the other ones went and sat down on a bench. So that was their way of recognizing that like as a whole, we probably read as threatening. We're not like we're just kids that are out here trying to find our friends. And like we want to we want to go visit him. Um, but to this person, this and we could tell he was a hospital worker because he was wearing scrubs to this this white hospital worker that just appeared out of nowhere. We probably look like a threatening group of, of teens, you know, like just out here causing a ruckus. And so we um, me and one of the other players went up and asked him where we were supposed to be. He was like, yeah, y'all are totally in the wrong place. Like you need to go do this and this and this. By the time he walked away, he wasn't even out of earshot, and all of them just busted out laughing. And I was like, what is so funny? <laughs> and, and they were like, did you not see how he reacted to us? I was like, yeah, I saw how he reacted to us. That's why I stepped forward. And like, I was trying to like mitigate this situation. And they just thought it was the funniest thing, funny in quotation marks, because they were recognizing how they were being read by him, right? And it wasn't even, it was a choreographed way of them organizing themselves that did not need to be spoken about like they just did it of like a couple of them dropped back one went with me so that I didn't have to go by myself and we figured out what the situation was and then we came back together to me that was like one of the most it was one of the clearest ways of seeing this thing that they recognize about themselves right and they're always constantly they are constantly trying it's it's the dance thing from before like there's there's this constant dance of like how am I being read um, is this a dangerous situation? Can this end up negatively for me? How can I make it so that it's not so negative and so dangerous and so risky? Um, 
when I was around, they, they did play up the gender thing, right? So like, there's this woman in our mix now, like, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that she's here? Like, how do we protect her too? And so I was a part of this group. It was really fascinating to see. And fascinating, I say, not because I thought it was like this interesting little tidbit of research, but also like kind of heartbreaking, right? To see that they're so young and recognizing that this is how they're being read already. And it's not going to stop because, again, they're in these bodies that are bigger and stronger and taller than everyone else. So it's something that they're going to have to deal with forever. Um, I think it was exaggerated in college because if you don't continue to play football, sometimes that body type is just, it's not sustainable. Um, the amount of work that they have to put into their bodies in order to build them up like that. But they're still tall and big, you know, and that's something that they're going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And so the fact that they had already recognized that and already knew how to do that was really interesting, but also really heartbreaking because that's, that's the reality of the situation. And again, I don't think that you see that unless you're in it. Right. Like that's not an experience that I would have necessarily known. I definitely assumed that that was happening. But to see them just disperse in that way was really interesting and like a great moment, unfortunately, for field work, but also just to make these to, to talk about what it's like to be a young black man in America right now. Right. Like that that to me is also what that showed. It had nothing to do with football, but it had something to it said something about the larger system that we're living in right now. Absolutely. And I mean, as you said, I mean, fascinating, but also just so in- incredibly heartbreaking. And, you know, that 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 example, that story really leads us into kind of diving more into some of the dynamics that you already mentioned, which is um, the way in which blackness intersects with violence and harm in the life of a football player. And and that, that example does demonstrate that while violence is demanded of the black body on the field and, and that that sacrifice of the body is really an occupational requirement of the institution, meaning the university, that off the field, the same body is coded as a threat and then also as a result is sub, uh, subjected to additional forms of potential violence, sometimes at the very hands of the institution like the state. Could you dive in more into um, how your work with college football players dramatizes some of those tensions and how you come to understand them? Yeah, um, because that's that's it, right? Like that is the thing that I was very aware of. If I wasn't, if I had no idea about the family stuff before I started this like actual research that I was doing for the sustained year or however many months it was, about 14 months, this was the thing that I knew was going on, right? Of like, there's a particular body that is required to play football and is actually built up to play football and is needed to play football because of the type of sport that it is. But I also, it was very clear to see that that same body is read in a completely different way once you take it off of a field, right? And so it's something about space. It's something about embodiment. It does have to do with like, we're, we're talking about identity stuff now. It does have to do with race and like gender and age, all of these things are having this really interesting interplay. And actually, um, Carl Sudler has a piece in the Washington Post that he wrote about George Floyd that was, it was really getting at these tensions. And it came out, I think this, I think it came out this year. Um, But it's really getting at these tensions of what it means to be a larger black man right now. And I was like, this is exactly who I'm working with, right? Like, and it's, it's because their bodies are required for the sport that they're playing. So how are they navigating these tensions between like this body is necessary in this space? I am actually needed this way. Like they actually want me to eat a bunch of stuff. They want me to lift all of this. They want me to spend all of this time practicing these moves that are 
going to make my muscles like be bigger and are going to teach me how to hit somebody harder. And they are going to give me sure they'll give me some equipment to protect myself, but hopefully I can protect myself, you know, like beyond, um, irreparable harm. Um, but that's part of the situation. But then what do I do with this body off of this field? Right. And to get back to the family stuff, something that, um, another thing that was surprising that came up in my work is the way that mothers are really interesting in this space, because, um, if we're talking about how players get into football, usually it's because of their dads. They were watching it with their dads when they were growing up or their dads played. And so they wanted to be like their dads, you know, like some type of narrative like that. Um, that was consistent, but then you have these moms that like are still really supportive and go to all of the games and are there watching, but like watching in very particular ways of like through their hands or like watching and that they're there at the games, but they're actually talking the entire time because they can't watch their sons play because it's like stressing them out. Like these moms were playing these really interesting roles because they were there all the time but they were invested in a completely different way. And so something that I've been thinking through and I think is is true across the board is that part of this thing of like the the players living in these different bodies, the moms recognized that a long time ago. And they knew that this was going to be an issue, right? Like you can tell that you're that you have a son that's interested in football and you know like maybe if he keeps going with it you kind of know especially depending on what position he plays you kind of know what body type he's he's gonna have or need to have in order to play that that position and so you have these moms that are like worried about their sons not only because of how violent the sport is but also because they recognize that the body that is helping them out in the sport and is kind of keeping them safe whatever that means is actually gonna put a target on them off of the field and so there's this really interesting interplay between like the social kin that they're creating with one another um, because of all of these things overlapping with one another. Then you have these, this biological kin, these moms and their fathers too, but specifically their moms is who I was focusing on and the way that they're navigating this space of like wanting to be supportive and wanting to protect their sons, but recognizing that this is an issue because partially the issues that these black women have also experienced themselves of like seeing the type of... Um, racism and anti-blackness and misogynoir that they've experienced and seeing that in a completely different way and seeing how that might influence their sons. It's all of these, these actors in this situation, actors isn't the great word, but all of these people in the situation that are recognizing that this is a weird situation and we need to keep everyone safe. And actually these are not the, the people that are best equipped to be safe because of their embodied experience. And so some of the things that the players were doing that were really interesting to me is playing around with this performance of self in order to keep themselves safe, in order to keep others safe, in order to appease their moms, to make sure that they felt okay about the situation, right? And that could be, um, I mentioned before that sometimes on campuses, players, athletes sometimes stand out just because of just because they wear the the team um, provided gear, right? And so some players I noticed would play around with that of like on certain days they would wear different clothes and they would wear clothes that made them seem as though they were like other students. Like they, they blended in in a particular way. Their bodies physically didn't change, but how they adorned their bodies did. And so they would wear clothes that were more like the other students in their classes because they were trying to act, they were trying to seem more like the other players in the classes. They would, um, they would switch between black English and standardized English depending on who they were around, 
right? So they didn't want to stand out by the way that they were talking. And so if they noticed that they were in mixed company of people that were players, but also students, or if they were in company that was just player or that was just students, or if they were around um, professors, you would notice that they would talk differently, right? Because they didn't want they were, they were doing this thing of like not wanting to be targeted in a particular way for their blackness, for their athleticism, for what they were, quote unquote, there at the university to do, right? There were all of these things that they were playing around with so that they could, it was clear that they were on a team, they were part of this group, it was clear that they were part of the brotherhood, but they were also trying to fit in in other ways because they recognized all of these tensions that were coming up around their being and the, the way that they just were, right? Like there were things that they couldn't change, but there were things that they could. And so some of them did play that game and were trying to mess around with that to make their, to make their experience easier, to make it not as risky, to, to make their moms feel better about how they were interacting with the world outside of sport. It was really interesting to see, but it all comes back to this idea that like, I recognize that my body is read one way on the field and it's read another way off of this field. And what can I do with this? How can I manage this? How can I navigate this? I'm going to talk to my my brother over here and ask him how he does it. I'm going to watch what he does, especially if like somebody was older and had been there a couple more years. How are they dealing with this? And what can I now do to make this easier for myself? And it was really fascinating to see them do that all the time. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's incredible. And it really um, is just such a sort of... Um rich accounting of how complex that world is mm-hmm. um so really thank you for taking us through that i, I just want to go back to derek's word pivot slightly <laughs> on the subject of the body mm-hmm. here um to ask you what is definitely a friendly theoretical question but just something that I'm, I'm really curious to sort of see your read on it so you draw on foucault's work on docile bodies to account for the discipline and surveillance of college football players and there's really no question that as a methodology of control, this is almost a textbook example. But for me, and the reason I'm asking this is I'm always left just a little bit frustrated by the fact that Foucault um, is not, for me, as grounded in political economy as I would like. So then I'm left asking, like, there is control. Yes, like we see it. We see the docility of the body here. We see how this management is happening. But why? What is the purpose of the control? And you point out in your work, that the purpose is certainly in part to produce wins, right? To forge, in fact, like winning machines. Mm-hmm. And again, that absolutely seems right. But then in the end, is will it winning really, to use the word again, the ultimate end? Um, to me, it's still ultimately a question of the extraction of value, right? That's part of what's happening here. Value for universities, value for coaches and administrators. Wins then that way are kind of a, a commodity through which that value travels in college football. But does that make them the end in themselves? And if bodies are not just being disciplined, which they are, (laughs) but having value literally bludgeoned out of them, as you actually so poignantly put it in a talk you delivered at Vanderbilt, just a quote from you from a second, you said, there's nothing like the sound of football helmets and pads hitting up against each other in a solid tackle. The scratch, the screech, the muffled union of fabric and plastic and flesh. I still wasn't used to it, though I doubt I ever will be the men running against each other with so much force, end quote. So if there is a transfer of value from the body of the athlete to the institution and its agents, isn't there a way in which the language of docility kind of actually conceals the extent of the exploitation? I don't know what you think. 
yeah, like that's that that's really something to think through. And actually, I appreciate your read of that because it's not very often that I get theoretical reads of my work. So this is like a great exercise as I'm trying to think through what I'm writing and how I want to write it and who I want to to read what I'm doing. Um, I will preface this by saying that Simone Brown has work on the gaze and the panopticon and surveillance that is building on mm -hmm. on Foucault, but also like challenging it. And that's stuff that I am so excited to get into because that has that has something to do with like these black athletes specifically in the way that she's talking about it. I do think through Foucault and the way that he talks about um, disciplining and docility and control and all of that. And you're right, it is a textbook example because that's exactly what's happening. Um, the way that I end up with it, though, is not so much that it's just wins. It's that it's all of the stuff that we've been mentioning this entire time. It's, it translates to wins, which actually translates to money. It translates to notoriety. It translates to branding potential. It translates to salaries for coaches. It translates to recruiting tools. It translates to, to um, exposure on TV, all of these things. So it's not necessarily just the win. And I think that the win is something that they kind of, it's, it's like the bone that they throw to the players of like, yes, you got to win and we're going to keep these records, which is actually like uh, inherent to modern sport. And so by the time you graduate, you'll have a certain number of wins under your belt, right? Like that's something that's tangible to players. There's a ton of other stuff that's, play that's tangible to the coaches, to the administrators, to the universities, to the conferences, to the NCAA, right? And so that's actually, I think what's going on is that they are using the bodies and the labor of these players, and this is everybody that's on the team, but again, I focus on black players, but this is everyone because this is a team thing now. Um, they are using and exploiting the bodies and the labor of these players for all of these other things, right? Which usually gets us to money in some way, which is why it is clear and it's like you cannot avoid that this is a capitalist machine. College football is a capitalist machine, right? And the only thing that keeps it going, the only thing that is feeding it is the players themselves. The entire thing implodes if they decide, actually, you know what, I'm being exploited. I don't want to do this anymore. Or I'm going to go play at this other university that has a different way of practicing and thinking about this. I am going to actually play a different sport, like a sport that is not doing this to my body, right? Like the second that they're thinking through these things, the entire thing implodes and it doesn't exist anymore. So we can have all of these, we can have this larger conversation about these systems and all of these things that are going on and how they all interact. But my point is, and the reason why I'm so invested in the players themselves is that without the players, none of this is even a conversation that we can have. And so I think that the reason that I do focus on the disciplining and the surveillance that's going on with them is that it seems to be that that's the part that's now taken for granted. That's the part that like, we can have all of these conversations about these bigger issues that do make it to the to like a larger stage and people can talk about in the media, journalists can write about it, we can talk about it on social media. Um, but the thing that is now taken for granted, it's the way that like their days are so scheduled. And it's the way that they have apps that track their movement and like they have to have them on their phone and these like interesting curfews that they have during the season. It's the ways that their diets are controlled to make sure that they're getting the right nutrition and hydration. And it's really like sometimes, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes they're getting sick, you know, like because they're working too much and they're not eating enough or they're not drinking enough water. Um, it's the ways that they're told to dress in order to represent the team, right? So like this whole thing that I was saying before of some of them wanting to adorn their bodies in different ways just because they're trying to either blend in or not with the team. Like sometimes they're told what to wear in certain places. Um, 
ways that they're told to speak. So you have certain players that actually do get to talk to the media and certain players that don't. Like if you've ever watched, like during, I'm, it, it's something that's always interesting to me during the season is you see which players on each team are allowed to talk to the media. Um, because there are certain players that the team selects and says that like, you are allowed to be a representative of this university and, and of this team. And that there's a lot that's coded in that, right? It's like how you look, how your actual appearance is, how you talk, what kind of tattoos you have, if you have any piercings, how you decide to dress, um, what you say, cussing is not a very big, it's not, it's definitely frowned upon programs. So if you have a problem with that, like you're not going to be a representative of the university and the media, right? Like, so all of these ways of being controlled. Um, and then the other thing with surveillance that comes in is that they're constantly being watched, right? Constantly being watched. And that can be to make sure that they're going to class, to make sure that they are um, getting the right medical care at certain times. That can also be excuse me, to make sure that you know that you messed up in practice today. So actually there's always a camera going at practice and everything is being filmed and then they go back and watch film and they will watch their failures over and over and over and over again because the idea is that if you watch it over and over and over again and I nitpick at it, then hopefully you will do it differently the next time and you will not actually mess up in the game. And so there are all of these things, I think hopefully I'm answering your question the right way, um, but there are all of these things that are, that are taken for granted because they're not the things that we're focusing on when we're talking about college sport at this level, when we're talking about college football, but it actually very directly impacts the players, but they just recognize that this is part of it, right? Like these are the things that are part of, to them. These are the things that are part of the sport. And if they do it all right, if they're successful with this, then they will get, they will get the wins. And then hopefully for them, either they will go professional, like if they get enough wins and they individually are good enough, or if they do what they're supposed to, quote unquote, do what they're supposed to in school, then they will get the wins on the field. And then that will translate for when they're trying to get jobs of like the ways that they can mobilize these conversations around like what it meant to be a college athlete, right? Like there's a lot around that right now too, of like, how can we translate these skills that you've gained as a football player into life outside of football? If you do all of that right, then you get a job and you're set, right? Like that's the idea. For the players, that seems to be what this is all doing. And that's why wins are important on some level for the schools themselves and the coaches though. It's much bigger than this. Like that's not really what it is because they need their programs to keep going. So as long as they appease the players with these wins, then they can get the branding, the branding power. They can get the recruiting tools that they need. They can get the exposure. They can get the money from the, from the conferences, from the, um, from the TV networks, they can keep their, their systems going if they appease the players in these small ways. And I think that that's, that's an interesting, again, another tension that comes out of it, but something that is seen as taken for granted because it's so, it just seems to be so integral to the entire enterprise of college football at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the, the shout out to Simone Brown's work. I think it's like, a, a it's her book, Dark Matters is something that folks in like the scholarly study of sport need to pay much more uh, attention to um, because I think it actually like illuminates a lot of what we're seeing in the total institution of the NCAA mm -hmm. um, and and lets us like ground it in in a, a theoretical um, uh, interpretation. I think it's wonderful, and I also appreciated your answer, Tracy, because. I mean, in Discipline and Punish, Foucault did say in his sort of own uh, androcentric prose <laughs> that the accumulation of men and the accumulation of capital cannot be separated. Right. 
that it's not possible to solve the problem of accumulation of docile bodies without the growth of this apparatus of production capable of both sustaining them and using mm -hmm, them. So mm -hmm. it's not like he didn't understand the question of control or who or what benefits from subjectivity to power. I think he was just, his focal point was just a little bit mm -hmm. different. It wasn't on capital first, right? It was on the power that forms the very basis of the existence of capital. So I think it's complementary, and I don't. I think I disagree with my colleague Nathan. Um, I, I think it's complementary, not contradictory. Even if Foucault could have could have not focused on capital, we could just go ahead and say that there's no way that you can talk about college football without focusing on it, right? It's like no matter who I'm citing, like yeah, as long absolutely. as I'm keeping. Yeah capitalism in the center of this entire thing even if i'm talking about the players themselves or the systems like that's what's driving this entire thing and the second i forget about that like that's when i've made a mistake um but as long as that's in the center of this because you can't i don't think you can have this conversation without recognizing that a lot of what is driving this is capitalist intentions and that's through the family thing that's through the care thing that's through protecting mm -hmm. players yeah. that's through getting yeah. them on the feet you know like everything has some type of capitalist motivation when you're talking about this world totally and i just just to add there um you know I, that, that was a well-made point by both of you obviously and uh <laughs> probably to me part of my um discomfort is it's almost like less the source material and how post-structuralism has often taken up Foucault's work and um, evacuated it of a lot of that political economy um, so that it becomes like, and often the way in which that application happens, and I'm not saying that that's what, because you're actually doing the, the opposite, Tracy, as you've just explained. Um, but too often we see it divorced. So it's just like we have this idea that like docile bodies exist in sport, sport discipline happens in sport, sport produces disciplined mm -hmm. people. Um, but it's like often the dots aren't connected back to like, why, mm -hmm. why, why are we disciplining in this way? Who's it for? And you're both, you're both doing that. You both mm -hmm, are making mm -hmm. those very explicit connections. So that's not something I have a concern with. So one kind of follow-up comment that I have, um, in just sort of thinking about the levels of power that you are talking about, Tracy, that, uh, black football players encounter on their teams and then I'm thinking, I'm going to kind of go on a bit of a tangent here, but I promise I'll bring it back. So I'm thinking that when, from a historical perspective, from a historian's perspective, when historians typically talk about, you know, sports systems in general and sort of how people, how athletes navigate oppression and how they navigate structures that try to constrain their actions and kind of how much agency people have. So I study sport in Eastern Europe um, under communism in the Eastern Bloc system, and within that Leadership, and this is something that dominates the field of sport history, um, much of the field of Eastern European history, but also the public conversations about communist sport systems, is that it is totally um, sort of obsessed. And I do this too, I contribute to this, but the conversations are obsessed with um, discussing about how the communist states had sort of these unwritten rules by which they sort of governed athletes' lives, and that athletes really were very powerless because of the unwritten nature of these rules, and they were constantly struggling to figure out. You know what behaviors are acceptable, what behaviors, what behaviors are not, how to sort of work within and around the systems, and that is something that totally dominates the literature. But I said, like I said, also dominates the public discussion because it's so focused on authoritarianism and totalitarianism mm -hmm. as being characteristics of the kind of communist state sports system. But when I think about how um, not all historians, but some historians talk about sport in the U.S. 
it's not quite talked about in the same way. I mean, it's talked for people who focus on, focus on the experiences of marginalized and minoritized athletes. They absolutely talk about it because athletes had to be so aware of the fact that due to the racial and economic dynamics of, of the, cap, the capitalist sports system in the U.S., that athletes, um, minority black and brown athletes, absolutely had have always had to be aware of these dynamics. But when we're sort of talking about ca like capitalist sport in the U.S. historically, from like kind of a broader structure system, we don't quite focus on that. And so I really like what you're highlighting here. And, and other people talk about it too. And But I just think that's a really kind of interesting difference that I'm looking at from kind of like a broader macro perspective is sort of like how do our biases or how, how do our positionalities, I guess, influence how we might approach a subject and sort of how um, from an American perspective for some people people's kind of um, dedication to, to, to democracy, quote unquote democracy and kind of American capitalism, how that can sometimes make them a little bit blind mm -hmm. to things that other people are more aware of. Um, so this is all to say that I really appreciate your work and really appreciate your answer here and kind of um, unveiling the, these issues. Thank you. And I will also add to that and just say that I don't think that this is something that hopefully I've made it clear, this isn't something that black players are doing just with football, right? And so part of the reason that they're aware of these rules, these, un, as you as you said, like these unwritten rules or things that are there that no one really tells them, but you kind of pick up on it, it's because that's also how they have to live their life outside of sport, right? There's certain ways, it's, it's to me, it was shown in that, in that example of like us walking around the hospital. There are ways of have, that you have to interact with your social world and the people that populate that social world um, that black people generally, but black men specifically pick up on and they know, and it's learned and it's ingrained and hopefully you survive it to make it to the point that I'm talking about to then be Apple to, to then be able to institute it correctly. Right. Like this isn't just a football thing. It, it works in everything that they're doing. It's this all encompassing thing. And that's why Christina Sharp's work about like the atmospheric anti-blackness like definitely works here because this isn't like there's anti-blackness in football, but there's like the United States is very anti-black. And then you could go outside of that too, like the, the world itself, like these, the ways that people interact with other people, it's a very anti-black system. And so it's not that they're learning this on the fly at 18 when they first get to college. It's like, no, they've come up against this stuff beforehand. Hopefully they've been decently successful at it and have kind of learned how to navigate it. And now they're just using those tools that they've learned to apply it to college football to apply it to being on a historically white campus, to apply it to be in this town that they potentially, you know, have never lived in before because they're not from the same place, to then apply it to their job that they get once they graduate. Like, these are things that are ingrained and that they've learned over time because it's not just specific to sport. Very, very important, important uh, points you're making, Tracy. And, and w one of the things that we love to ask um, our guests um, on the show, particularly because we grapple with these same questions mm -hmm. of um, how we negotiate our, our critical uh, approach to sport, but also our, we are invested in different ways and um, um, it, with different relationships to sport that each one of us have. But we always grapple with this question of how do we be critical of sport as an institution, but also be either fans or watch it or talk about it, um, talk to other people who, who enjoy it. So we'd like to 
ask you a little <laughs> bit about that to, to wrap up our conversation as well. We'd like to ask um, kind of where you stand on football personally as someone who does study it and um, who is critical um, of certain things within within the system. Do you enjoy the sport? Is it a site of sort of um, personal investment for you? And also, where do you stand on the very politics of football as an institution, which we've we've talked about a lot on this show and we're very clear with our stance. So maybe another way of asking this is, should football continue to exist as a site of labor and spectacle? And what are the implications of asking that very question? Ooh, now that's the question, right? Like that's it right there. Huge question. Um, <laughs> I remember writing something, it was maybe, it was maybe my third year of grad school. And the way that I ended it was um, because of something that a coach told me. Um, I was at a practice and I was making a ton of faces when, when they were, when the players were tackling each other and it was making me really uncomfortable. It might've been like part of that, that, that quote that Nathan read earlier, um, of like the way that tackles sound when you're really close to them and like, you're not used to it or like it's like, it, it was incredibly foreign to me. And I was making all of these faces and this coach came up to me at one of the places I was at. And he was like, I see that you love it just as much as I do. And then he just walked away. And I was like, that's what you got from me making these faces and like looking really uncomfortable in the situation. But that stuck with me because the way that he was like, the way that he framed it was that like, this is it, right? Like this is, this is the tangible part of sport. It's the sound of it. It's the way that these players are hitting up against each other so hard. It's the 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 disciplining and the training that allows them to do it the right way and hopefully not hurt themselves but like you do need to do it in a particular way like to him when he said that i eventually realized that that's what he was talking about is like all of the material stuff to sport or to football is what he said that he loved and he was like yeah like you're making the right faces like of course you're going to make a face to this because like it is actually really harmful but like i see you're enjoying it and so um i was trying to think through that piece of like what does it mean to love a sport like this? And do I actually love this sport? And the way that I've like now come to answer that question, my answer changes all the time is that I don't know if I necessarily love football. I probably don't love football, but I'm incredibly invested in the people that play it. And I think that if they want to play it, and this might sound bad, but if they want to play football, because on one hand, I do actually understand when I ask players about why they're playing, what's in it for them? Like, why are they doing this when they understand all of the risks on several different levels? Like, what is keeping you here? Like, what is the reason for this? And usually their answers are like, sometimes they're really surprising. Like, you know, like, and sometimes they're super vulnerable answers about why they're still invested in this thing that is causing them actual harm. One player told me that like, he actually, everyone on his team knew that he did not like football anymore. I think he was either a junior or senior at the time that he told me this. He did not like it. He was not invested in it. He did not want to be there, but he was there because he was actually really good at it. And if he stopped playing, then his team had a better chance of losing than they did of winning because he was not out there on the field with them. And so he was, and I mean, it sounds strange to me, but he was sacrificing himself and he was like confident enough in his ability to stay safe, like relatively safe for the amount of time that he had left in college, 
that he could labor on behalf of his football brothers to make sure that they could win because he understood that they wanted to win and potentially go pro. And so he was, and so he was out there for them. And I thought that was a fascinating answer. And there are answers like that that are continuously coming up of like, I'm in it for this. I'm doing it for this. I recognize all of these reasons why I probably shouldn't be, but this is what it has given to me. And I would never give these things up just because I have the potential of getting hurt. Right. And then you do, of course, get the guys that are like, no, actually, I'm over this and I'm going to retire early. You know, like you sometimes get people that retire in college because they're just like, this is too much. And I know I'm not going to go pro, so I'm not going to do this to my body anymore. Um, I am invested in the players themselves. So if they still want to play, what I think I am in a position to do now, especially as a professor, as a professor at an institution like the one that I'm at, um, that's affiliated with the other places that I have been, is to talk to them (laughs) and to figure out what their reasonings are and to give them information about the things that I have learned, right? And point them in the directions of people like this podcast, of People that are talking about it and thinking through it. And I know that the podcast is called In Sport. And I know that that's like where y'all want to go. But the other thing that y'all provide through this, and there's several other people that are doing this too, is to actually just talk through what's going on, right? Like some of this stuff is hidden, not just to the public, but to the players themselves. Because I, I argue that like it's, it's hard to theorize this stuff while you're in it, right? Like, and actually it, it's goes against your best interest to theorize it while you're experiencing it because a lot of it is really hard (laughs) and really challenging and like might make you question all of the decisions that you've made up until that point in your life right like if you're 21 and you're like should I stay for fifth year or not and then you start thinking about all of this stuff like yeah you're probably not going to keep going um but that might not be stuff that you were aware of before because you were had your blinders on you just needed to be in it and if you thought about it if you looked left or right then it would derail your entire plan, right? I appreciate outlets like this that are at least talking through the issues, sometimes providing solutions to them, sometimes saying that we don't need this anymore. But I think that these are outlets that athletes themselves can really use to their advantage. And if you still want to play, then there are ways to hopefully keep you safe in it. Like you do not need to risk your entire life for it. You have some agency in this entire situation, right? Like you can stand up and say, I think as a, and usually it helps if it's a collective. So like not you as an individual, because that is very risky in college too. Um, But this is where the brotherhood part comes in. This is where the teammate part comes in of like, y'all can come together and say, actually, we think it doesn't make any sense for us to be playing right now because of COVID. So what is a better way for us to do this? Because actually, if we say we're not going to play, then like you don't have a team. So what can we do? Right? Like what can, there was a player at Ole Miss that, um, that, did a lot in order to get the the state flag removed, right? Like there's something that football play, especially football players, there's a, a certain amount of power that they have that they can mobilize. And I think the second you unlock that, the system might actually change. Maybe not like, definitely not immediately and maybe not holistically, like, but like little parts of it, I think have potential to change if we get to the players and rec- and they are starting to recognize their own power within it. And so I'm committed to, to like first talking to players. I have no problem talking to players. I think that's part of the issue too is that like there's sometimes a disconnect between the theory and the practice of everything, but especially this type of work is that like you can be theorizing all day long and writing academic articles all day long, writing books, even writing public pieces, but like if you're never actually talking to the athletes themselves, 
then like you you've missed the boat here you know like there's there's a really interesting disconnect that's going on because they're the actual ones that are doing this stuff and so this is my long-winded answer of saying that like I don't think that I love football but I'm invested in the people that are playing and if they want to play I'm here to help in the way that I can and do I think that football offers something to the people that play it yes I do do I think that there are other things that offer similar, like, do I think there are other activities that offer similar things? Yes, I do. And I think that that's interesting too, because players recognize that something that I've started to ask is um, like you're playing because you're in college and maybe you're about to graduate or whatever, but would you let your kids play? And that answer has changed substantially over the 10 or so years that I've been doing this work. Initially it was, yeah, like I've seen all the things that it's done for me. Uh, I would love for, my kids to take part in this and to see what this world is like and to have the relationships that I have and to learn the things that I've learned and to, you know, to come out the other side in a more positive way, because I think I have versus now I had a player that his whole thing was, he was convinced that his kids were going to play tennis because that was a safer sport, but you still got to like, it was still a form of exercise. Um, you still got to be active. It was still very competitive. You could still make it to a really high level with it. Like it still had similar, it was a very similar sport to him, but there was not the risk of concussions for him. That was part of why he decided he didn't want them to play football. And so it's been a fascinating answer. So like if there's ways to change it, if there's ways to make their experiences in it better, then yes, I'm all for it because I see, I do see the potential of it. Um, but the way that it is now is unsustainable. I will end and say that, um, I had a, an advisor in grad school that I was talking through some of these things with, and I started at grad school in 2014. So this was, it was, um, right around the time that all of the concussion stuff was starting to become really public. And he said, when I was talking through some of the stuff in his office one day, he said, um, flowers flower right before they die. And, I don't know if he meant that to be super like really deep or really insightful. He probably just said it and has completely forgotten that he said it to me. But I think about that a lot of um, at the time, all of this stuff was, was exploding in the public and people were talking about it all the time. And the way that he meant that was like, we're, we're seeing the downfall, right? Like this cannot be sustained at the level that it is with all of these issues that are going on, all of this attention that's on it. Um, all of these things that are going on within this particular system, like college sport, but then also if we add in the NFL with it, like that's got its all you know, a whole host of issues that are going on. The fact that all of this is going on now is that we're actually seeing, we're seeing it imploding in front of our eyes. And if we don't do something with it, then it actually is going to die. And like, it's, it can't be sustained in this way. And so I think about it a lot of, are we still seeing that? Cause at this point, what, that's seven years ago, are we still seeing that? Is it getting better? So it's actually, um, going to be sustained or give it 10 years and like all of like this will be a huge like a, a thing that we look back on of like remember that book that I tried to write and now no one even knows what football is like is that is that what this is going to be and I'm really interested to see what that is but that has stuck with me for the entire time that I've been thinking through these ideas of like what actually happened like what is actually going on are we seeing the demise of it or are we seeing it amping up and so I'm unfortunately excited to see what that actually means and what that means for the people that are invested in it. Well, what an incredible answer. Like we are just cont continuously blown away by, by you and your insights and, and your willingness to just really, really reflect and sort of dive deep. And thank you for walking us through also how you perceive sort of your role with college football players. I think that's really important for us and for listeners to think through and sort of keep in mind. Um, of course, thank you for the kind words about the podcast. And we <laughs> were so excited to be able to speak with, with you and, and hear your expertise. 
Um, and just thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Oh yeah. Thank you for, for joining us. This was truly fantastic. Mm-hmm.